Andrews, I, I want to publicly give a uh, shout out to Ben and Whitney Winkler. Uh, Y'all know this already, but they are rock stars, and they have carried so much of the burden these past two years at Redeemer and have been just such a faithful and steady presence here, sharing their gifts, pouring out for this community. In fact, to speak personally, uh, the Winklers have been so hospitable towards us, helping us even find a house when we were, when we were headed towards Memphis. Whitney has, has the past couple of weeks taken our kids on adventures and bringing us Jerry's. Uh, ben has been so gracious and patient to sit down with me and kind of bring me up to speed on what's happening around here. I, I think so much of why Redeemer is in great shape and healthy and such a wonderful church is largely due to their leadership. So I really do want to thank them publicly. And if you want any more details on how you can express your gratitude towards them, check your email. If you don't know what I'm talking about, uh, email somebody other than Ben to ask and explore ways that you can thank them. And uh, they will let you know and give you some info on how you can thank them and encourage them. Well, before we get into this passage, I do want to share just a few brief thoughts on our current moment. Uh, unfortunately, as you know, racial injustice is nothing new to our country. It's nothing new to our city. In fact, I've been reading books about the history of Memphis right now, many of which the search committee just has given us as gifts. And one of the books that I read recently said that, that Memphis as a city was founded on disparities, and so unfortunately and obviously racism is still alive and well in our country and in our city and in our very hearts. And that should grieve us, that should break us. And so while I am uh, by no means an expert in this area and have lots to learn and lots to repent of personally, Redeemer is a church that does dream about seeing uh, lives and relationships in our city flourishing anew through the redemptive love of Jesus. And so what is Redeemer's response to all of this? Well, uh, th this is not an exhaustive list by any means, but here are some just preliminary ideas. Number one, uh, our session is going to set aside some time this next, at our next session meeting for, for a specific time for prayer and lament. We are gonna ask the Lord to break our hearts, for the Lord to mold our hearts to love what he loves and to hate what he hates and to lead us as we seek to lead and love this congregation and this city. Uh, secondly, uh, next Wednesday, June 10th, I would like for us as a congregation to set that day aside specifically for a day of fasting and prayer. Uh, many of you, no doubt, are already engaged in the city on lots of different levels, fighting for justice and involved in what's going on in the city. And so uh, we wanted, as a, as a corporate body, to respond as well with prayer and with fasting. And so we're going to send out details of that. Uh, more information is going to come. But really, we, we want, as a congregation, to pray for our city. We want to pray for people of color. We want to pray for justice. We want to pray for peace. And thirdly, lastly... I know that uh, many or some community groups aren't meeting this summer, but for those of you that are, I would love to invite you to discuss some of these issues within your community groups. There are, um, you may already be doing this, but I would love for our community groups to begin taking an article or a podcast or a documentary or a book and begin to kind of processing things together. And, and I plan on sending the community group leaders a collection of resources 
uh, later this week, so be on the lookout as, uh, for that as well. Again, this, this list is, ex is not exhaustive by any means, but obviously there is a lot of work to do, and Redeemer exists not just to love God, but also to love our neighbor. So I want to turn our attention now to this passage in Luke 15, which is before us. You can find in the bulletin, or you can go ahead and flip to Luke 15. In order to help us love God and love our neighbor, this summer what we're going to do is we're going to look at the parables that Jesus told. If you're, if you're unfamiliar, parables are one of Jesus' fav, favorite teaching devices. They're these little stories that he would tell that really aim to show us who God is and what he is like and how we can connect with him. And, and I will warn you on the front end, the parables are intentionally designed to frustrate you. They're intentionally designed to kind of get under your skin and disrupt the categories that you have about God and how to connect with them, which are all wrong. So to that end, we're going to look at Luke 15. And by the way, this passage is so loaded. There's so much good stuff going on in here. We're going to spend two weeks looking at this passage together. So I'm going to read it and then we'll consider it together. Luke 15, verse 11. And he, this is talking about Jesus, and he said, there was a man who had two sons. And the younger of them said to the father, father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country. And there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country, who sent him into his fields to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger? I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose and came to his father, but while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Bring quickly the best robe and put it on him. And put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet. And bring the fattened calf and kill it. And let us eat and celebrate. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let me pray, and then we'll consider it together. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for its truth. Thank, thank you for the way that it pierces us. And I pray now by your spirit, would you take your word and pierce our hearts? Make our hearts soft, open up our ears, open up our eyes, that we would see and behold the beauty and the truth of who you are. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we moved into our house a couple of weeks ago now, and if you have moved any time in your life, you will know that the act of moving is the worst. It's just 
awful. There's boxes everywhere. The, the paper that, that you pack the boxes with is everywhere. And I'm the kind of person that unless things are settled and everything is organized and kind of where it needs to be, then I kind of break out in hives and get stressed out. So it's been a stressful past few weeks. And our, so the other day, I guess two weeks ago or so now, I was in our house, we were unpacking boxes, we were doing all this work in the morning, and you hit the point where you're just kind of done, and you're exhausted, and you're tired, and you're hungry, and your kids are hungry, and so I went into the kitchen to fix them some lunch. Now, our kitchen has boxes literally up to our heads, and the paper inside of them is everywhere, so I'm stepping over paper, I'm kind of meandering through this maze of boxes. I get to the fridge, open it up, pull the stuff out, and as I went to close the fridge door, one of the shelves just decided to just fall. You know the shelves where you put all of your condiments and salad dressings? It just apparently was holding on by a thread, and as I was closing it, it just collapsed and crashed to the ground, and I grab it, and I, I was able to salvage everything except for the jar of grape jelly, which fell to the ground and just exploded. Glass everywhere, jelly everywhere. And so here I am holding this shelf with disheveled condiments, and I'm standing in a sea of broken glass with a blob of sticky purple jelly with boxes up to my head and paper all around me. And that was the moment where it hit me. We are not settled. We are not quite home yet. <laughs> and, and we just, you know, I'm craving, just longing to be settled and at home. And because home is this profound reality. Home is this place where you're just, you're, 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 you're free to be yourself. You can relax. You can put your feet up. You're, you're safe. Home is this profound space and this profound reality. And so you would have thought two months ago that uh, the quarantine would have sounded like a government mandated like vacation. Just unless it's absolutely essential, stay at home, work from home in your sweatpants, take two or three walks a day, pound as much Netflix and Disney Plus and Hulu as your brain can take. And it's, it's fascinating, if, if the quarantine has taught us anything, it has taught us that you can be home, you can even be required to be at home and you're still not home. Because my guess is for most of us, these past two months has been exhausting and lonely and frustrating and stressful and you just want it to end and you're just kind of over it. It's fascinating, you can be locked at home and still not home. You can be at rest and still be restless. And I think what that shows you is that this craving for home, it, it is, it's a much more deeply subterranean spiritual desire. This desire for us to find a place where you can just belong and find life and be at rest. That's our longing for home, even when we're at home. And it's into that fundamental human desire that Jesus tells this story. And he tells this story really to show us two things, how we get lost and then how we get home. And so what I wanna do for the rest of our time is just explore those two ideas. How does Jesus show us how we get lost and then how do we get home? So first, how do we get lost? Well, if you look at the beginning, verse 11, we discover that as Jesus tells the story, there's a man, there's a father that has two sons. And each son represents a different strategy for looking for a home. 
Now, this morning, we're going to look at just the younger son, and next week, uh, we'll look at the older son. But the younger son's strategy is that he thinks that home is going to be found away from his father. That's his strategy. Home is going to be found away from his father. And so look, let me show you. Look at verse 12. The younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Now, here's what this kid is saying to his dad. He's saying, Dad, you know how when you die, I get to inherit some of your stuff? Yeah, I kind of want that now. And all commentators agree on this, that he's basically looking at his dad and saying, I wish you were dead. And so what's crazy is that the father sells his stuff off. He sells off his portion of the estate. He gives him his money. And you know that, the, that this kid thinks that home is away from his father because now that he has his money, he pieces out and he leaves for a faraway country. He has what he wants. He has his stuff. He doesn't care about his dad. Dad, I, I'm not interested in doing the father-son thing with you anymore, but I will take that cut from your bank account. And so he has his money. And he runs off because he fundamentally believes that home is found away from his father, where I'm free to do whatever I want. I'm free to be myself without being judged or criticized or challenged in any way. I have complete autonomy to be myself, do whatever I want. What is Jesus showing us uh, with this first part of the story? I I think what he's doing is he is challenging the way that we typically think about what it means to be lost. He's challenging the way that we typically think about sin. Now, I know that word is, is an antiquated word. It can be offensive. It's been weaponized in lots of different circles. But this is why Jesus is so brilliant, because he's showing you that sin isn't just breaking rules. Sin is when you look for rest and belonging and life, when you look for home away from the Father. My guess is most people in the South, at least, whenever they hear a religious person like myself use that word sin, they're thinking of specific behaviors Rules that you, you, you uh, shouldn't break, cheating, lying, stealing, murdering, these sort of things, these are sins. And I, the Bible, of course, would agree with that, but Jesus is being way more sophisticated here, way more nuanced. He is saying sin is actually that impulse in your heart to find life wherever it can be found as long as it's not with the Father. It could be anywhere. And so if I can get away from God, then I'll be home. That's the lie. And we can do this in a million different ways. There's lots of different areas in this far off country where we can run away from God. We can do it in in ways where we say, if my kids are just well behaved and they can get into the good schools and we can be a respectable family, well, then I'll be home. Or we can do it where we say, "If if I can just get to that point in my career, if I can just get to that next step, then I'll be home. Or we think, well, if I can just fall in love with somebody, if I can be in a relationship, then I'll finally be home. We say, if I I can just get that level of income, if I can afford that house or that car or that whatever, then I'll be home. That's the instinct. That's the lie. And Jesus shows us that that road, whichever road it is, it will always, always lead to a dead end. Look, look at what happens with the younger son of the story. Off he goes. He's got his truckloads of cash, and he goes off, and he just kind of lives this wildly exciting life, good parties and good food and good drink and good times, and he eventually finds himself broke and broken. It says in verse 15 that he finds himself feeding pigs, which 
in Jesus' context to a Jewish culture, this would have been the epitome of just bottoming out. His life is unraveled. He has hit rock bottom, which is to say he is utterly lost. He's, He's lonely and alienated. Uh, he, he is hurting, he has hurt other people, he's done things he never thought he would ever do with his life, he, he's hollow, he's lost. There's this amazing video of um, Lady Gaga on YouTube where she is backstage at Madison Square Garden and the, 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 the arena is packed out, tens of thousands of fans that are waiting for her. They've paid for her. This, 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 they paid to see her. This is, a, this is her you know, big tour, and she's backstage. This is an amazing clip, and she's, she's crying. She's weeping. And here's what she says on this video. She says, I just sometimes feel like a loser still, you know. It's crazy because it's like we're at the garden, but I still sometimes feel like a loser kid in high school, and I just got to pick my stuff up. I got to pick myself up and I have to tell myself I'm a superstar every morning so I can get through this day. Now, what is she saying? I mean, she's at the height of her career. Applause, recognition, a packed out arena of people just to see her. And she says, it's still not home. I still feel lost. I still feel like a loser. You know, Jim Carrey said something uh, very similar once. He said, I think everyone should get rich and famous and do everything they ever dreamed of so they can see it's not the answer. Now, that's, you know, nice for him to say from his vantage point. But here, I mean, there's a million examples that I could lay out this morning of people that have gone after the thing, gone after the reward, gone after the recognition or the money or the whatever, and they get it and they realize... It's not home, still lost, still empty. If, if you think that home is found in being beautiful or attractive or fit, you, you will always feel lost, you'll always feel ugly. If you think that home is found in being smart, you will always feel dumb. If you think that home is found in just pleasure and leisure and experiencing one good adventure after the other, you will always feel empty. Jesus is showing us this is how we get lost. We look for home anywhere away from the Father. So secondly, and most importantly, how in the world do we get home? How do we get home? If that's how we get lost, how do we get home? Well, look at verse 17. It says that this kid came to himself, which means he comes to his senses. He he has this moment of clarity where he realizes, okay, I don't even know who I am anymore. I have got to make some changes in my life and maybe my father back home can help me. But he's got a big problem because his father knows how much he has screwed up. And so what this kid does is he's smart and he devises a plan and he drafts this apology speech in verse 18 and he, and he says, okay, I'm gonna go home. I'm just gonna grovel. I'm gonna go before my father and say, father, I've sinned against heaven. I've sinned against you. Just don't even treat me like a son anymore. I want you to just hire me as if I'm one of your hired servants. So that's his plan. He's going to go back home and basically say, hey, Dad, I'm willing to make some changes, and I'm willing to work off this giant debt that I've just accumulated. (coughs) So he heads back home. He's got his speech memorized. Now, remember, this kid has probably been responsible for liquidating a third of his family's estate, 
And this is a shame and honor culture, which means that he, he has done unbelievable damage to his family's name, his family's reputation, which probably this family worked generations to get this land. And so when this kid comes back through the village, walking down Main Street, covered in pig filth, it would not have been uncommon for a mob to form around this kid and to mock him and taunt him and beat him, possibly even kill him. It would not have been uncommon for the older brother or maybe even the father himself to run out to this kid and publicly uh, insult him and, and beat him and drive him out of town for, for the disgrace that he's brought on his family. So what does the father do? Look at verse 20, it says, but while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. The father runs out towards his son. Why? Because he's running to beat the crowds. He's running to get ahead of the crowds. And, and this man, of course, would have worn this long tunic, which is like a long robe. And to run means he would have had to have hoisted up his robes and run, which would have been um, horribly foolish looking. I mean, in this day and age, dignified, wealthy patriarchs don't run. They don't show off their thighs while they're running through the streets. Similar to our day, people in high-powered positions, CEOs, CFOs, they're not, you don't see them running. You don't see Elon Musk or Sheryl Sandberg or David Wallace running around. That's what the interns do. That's what the temps do, running around and getting the coffee. But here's this man, this, this, uh, this father, this powerful CEO of his estate, and he hikes up his robe and he runs. Why is he trying to get to his son before the mob? So that he can take the spotlight of shame off of his son and put it onto him. He diverts the shame from the mob that is going to land on his son. He's diverting it away from him by hiking up his robes, looking like a fool, and by embracing his son. If any crowd, you know, if the crowd was to throw any proverbial cabbage or tomatoes or empty beer bottles, instead of landing on the son, now it's landing on him. The father is acting as a substitute. Mock me, shame me, abuse me, but not my son. And really the reason primarily why he's running to see his son is so that he can just have his boy back in his arms because the son is one of the most precious things to his father. And so he runs to him, he embraces him and he kisses him, which in the Greek says he's kissing him continually over and over and over, just bombarding him with kisses. And the son, fascinating, verse 21, launches into his apology speech. In mid-speech, the father interrupts him. The father doesn't even let him finish. The father just doesn't care about the son's plans and resolutions and apologies. He just cuts him off mid-speech because this kid's resolutions aren't the reason why the father loves him. He, the father doesn't need a reason to love this kid. He loves this kid just because he loves his kid. He loves him just because he loves him. It's a part of his character. And so he calls his attendants to bring the robe and the ring and the sandals, which was the father's way of reinstating this kid as a son, into, as his family. It's his way of publicly saying, I am going to treat you as if you never left in the first place. And then he throws 
this massive, extravagant blowout party that would have been so over the top. Parties of this magnitude would probably have only taken place maybe once a year. And that's how this part of the parable ends. It's a great story. I mean, too bad Jesus is just making it up, though. Or is he? I mean, Jesus is telling this story because this is Jesus' story. Jesus is telling us, okay, I'm the one that leaves home and goes chasing after the father's rebellious children. He leaves his father in heaven and he comes down to earth where he is actually literally homeless. And he experiences not just a life of homelessness, but he is eventually executed on a wooden cross where he is mocked, where he is insulted, where he is shamed and where he is abused and he is absorbing all of the shame that your and my rebellion deserves and of himself. And he does it not just so that he can forgive you and then tolerate you, he does it so that you can be reinstated as a child, as a child of the father, as if treated as if you have never left and been lost in the first place. And then what he does is he throws a party that goes on for eternity that you and I don't deserve. That's what the story is that Jesus is telling us. He's blowing up our categories by showing us the heart of God is always with the people that are lost. It's always with people without homes because he's desiring to provide a home for you. He's desiring to provide a party for you. So how do we get home? Well, like the younger brother, you just come back to the father. You come back to him even when your motives are all messed up, even when you don't even really understand your father's character. And you can show up with your resolutions and with your apologies and with your resume, and that's not why he will receive you. All you have to do is just show up covered in the pig filth of your own shame and your own mistakes and your own regret, and you will receive a welcome from a big-hearted God that wants to throw a party for you. That's how you get home. Well, I'm sure under normal circumstances, Redeemer here is very similar to the church that we just left in Knoxville, meaning that when church is over, all of the kids kind of go crazy and play with each other and the adults try to have some conversation with each other. And it was the same way at our church in Knoxville. And we always have this rule with our children, when church lets out, you can run around, you can play with your friends, but you gotta stay in the sanctuary. I don't want you to go to the balcony or outside, like you gotta stay in this room and they got it. Okay, so one Sunday about five years ago, our daughter Zoe Kate, who was four years old at the time, we, uh, church was over, we were talking to people, the crowd was kind of thinning out, it was time to go get some lunch, and so we start looking for Zoe Kate. And we got our, we got our buddy Reed, but we don't know where Zoe Kate is, and, uh, which is not totally abnormal, usually she's hiding under the chairs or something, and so I go out looking for her, and I'm kind of walking up and down the aisles, and I'm starting to get annoyed because I can't find her, and I'm looking under the chairs, and so I start to ask somebody, hey, have you seen Zoe Kate? And no, haven't seen her keep looking, ask somebody else, have you seen Zoe Kate? No, go and find Catherine. She was talking with some friend. Have you seen Zoe Kate? No, 
And so now my panic level is starting to rise. And so Catherine and I start to form a little search party. If we're grabbing friends, we're like, okay, can you look in the balcony? Go see if she's up there. Some of y'all go back in the nursery, see if she went out there, see if she went into the narthex. And every person that came back after looking for her couldn't find her. And so now my mind is going to horrible worst case scenarios. I'm thinking, did somebody take her? Did she wander into the parking lot and got hit by a car or something? I'm just, my panic level is full tilt boogie at this point. And so I I think to go downstairs where the kitchen is, thinking she's never been downstairs, she would never go downstairs. And so I go downstairs and as I round the corner, already kind of terrified, sure enough, there she is with one of her friends, they had wandered down into the kitchen and were drinking all of the leftover communion wine, the little thimbles of wine that they had taken down after the service that was just left there. They're just like taking shots of communion. And this is not a lie. As I see her, she has has a purple mustache, four years old. She looks at me and she says, Daddy, this juice makes me happy. (laughs) And so... Here is this child of mine that has disobeyed me. She, she has broken our rules. She has left the safety of our, of our vision and of our protection. She has traumatized me and Catherine as we've been looking for her. I mean, she's four years old and she's literally gotten drunk at church. And uh, <laughs> I think this is true because she passed out in the car ride home that afternoon. But when I saw her, I did not scold her and shame her and give her a lecture. When I saw her, I just ran to her and embraced her and held her in my arms because she's my girl. And there's not many things in this world that are as precious to me as she is. And so I was just relieved to have her and hold her. Final question. Do you believe that the God of this universe finds you precious, that he would consider you his beloved, that he would form a search party in his son, and that he would literally go to hell and back to find you? Do you believe that home is really found with him? I think if you were to know the unrelenting, aggressive, compassionate love of the Father, you would begin to see being with him is home. Consider that an invitation for you this morning. Let me pray. Father, I pray that you would open up our eyes and help us to see that home is actually found with you. Would you protect us from ourselves? We are so prone to wander. Even after we have tasted your goodness and tasted your grace, There's something in us that still believes that home is going to be found away from you. Father, would you overwhelm us with your grace, overwhelm us with your love, that we might be trained slowly but surely to know that our home is with you. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Done. Oh, I got to do the end, don't I? Man, I got sweaty. If this is making me sweaty, (laughs) that's right, just.
So they're standing at this point. Do you introduce the dismissal in any way, or do you just begin? Let us go forth. You say, here, here now this dismissal. Okay. <laughs> okay. I didn't, I forgot to time that, by the way. How, did y'all have a sense of how long? Okay. That's it. That's it. No one's going to hate that. Okay. I'm ready when you are. Let us go forth to serve Memphis and the world as those who love our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Thanks be to God. Hear now this benediction, this good word from God to you. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Go in his peace. All right, good work. Good work. Man, if we just cut out singing, that's, a four, that's 47 minutes. <laughs>